All Right Wrestling with Theology fans. It is Monday, May the 10th, 2021. So we are standing in the confessional corner. This week we are taking a look at what the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions edition of the Book of Concord, sees as the end of Article 4 in the Apology. Many others continue on as Melanchthon did for another couple of hundred paragraphs, but the editors of this edition take the fact that after at paragraph 122, you have a switch in what Melanchthon is talking about, so they separate it into a separate article, and we'll pick on that next week. But for this week, we are looking at paragraphs 103 to 121. First of all, looking at the church fathers and their declaration of justification by faith, and then covering a fact again that the adversaries absolutely reject this. And part of that rejection is what then Concordia calls Article 5, love and fulfilling the law, which is where the confutation did go deeply into it. So there will be a lot of talk about what love means in the equations of salvation over the course of the next couple of months. Right now we're going back to justification and the end of Melanchthon's argument here. So paragraphs, paragraph 103 through 105. Here and there among the fathers, similar testimonies exist. For Ambrose says in his letter to a certain Irenaeus, Furthermore, the world was subject to God by the law, because according to the command of the law, all are indicted. And yet by the works of the law, no one is justified. For by the law, sin is perceived, but guilt is not taken away. The law, which declared all people sinners, seemed to have done harm. But when Jesus came, he forgave to all people the sin, which no one could avoid. And by the shedding of his own blood, he blotted out the handwriting that was against us. This is what he says in Romans 5.20. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Because after the whole world became subject, Christ took away the sin of the whole world. As John testified, saying in John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And for this reason, let no one boast about works, because no one is justified by his deeds. But he who is righteous has righteousness given to him, because he was justified from the washing of baptism. Faith, therefore, is that which frees through the blood of Christ, because he is blessed, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 32.1 These are the words of Ambrose which clearly favor our doctrine. He denies justification to works and teaches that faith sets us free through the blood of Christ. Let all the commentators on the sentences who are adorned with magnificent titles be collected into one heap. For some are called angelic, others subtle, and others unanswerable. When all these have been read and reread, they will not be worth half as much for understanding Paul as this one passage of Ambrose. Ambrose, as he is writing this letter to Irenaeus, points out what Paul says in Romans 7, that by the law, sin is perceived, but guilt is not taken away. We see the guilt. Paul says, I would not have known what it was to covet, had not the law said, you shall not covet. So therefore, 
you understand sin by the law, but the law cannot take away sin. So he says, Christ took away the sin of the whole world. And for this reason, let no one boast about works, because no one is justified by his deeds. You can't earn your way into heaven. And it doesn't matter who says otherwise, how many titles and degrees and everything else and all the letters they can put down at the end of their name and before their name, they cannot convince you. They cannot prove that you can be saved by your works. You need Jesus. You need him to cover your sin. You need him to forgive your transgression, using the words of Psalm 32. And so he says, let all the commentators on the sentences be compiled into one heap. The sentences were a commentary written by or compiled by Peter Lombard. And these were the basic textbooks of theology. Really just pithy sayings that almost looked like the book of Proverbs, but formed the basis and core of the Roman theology of the medieval age. And this is what Melanchthon and Luther and all the reformers are fighting against when they fight against these scholastics. Because this book, these sentences, are what they've been trained in, what they have had to memorize in order to advance their education, to advance in their place in the cloisters. But Ambrose is not the only one. He brings up Augustine in, paragraphs, in paragraph 106. In the same way, Augustine writes many things against the Pelagians. On, in On the Spirit and the Letter, he writes, The righteousness of the law, that he who has fulfilled the law shall live in it, is set forth for this reason. When anyone has recognized his weakness, he may attain and do the law and live in it, reconciling the justifier not by his own strength nor by the letter of the law itself, which cannot be done, but by faith. In a justified person, there is no right work by which he who does that work may live, but justification is received by faith. Here Augustine clearly says that the justifier is reconciled by faith and that justification is received by faith. A little after, by the law we fear God. By faith, we hope in God. But to those fearing punishment, grace is hidden. And the soul laboring under this fear resorts by faith to God's mercy in order that he may give what he commands. Here he teaches that hearts are terrified by the law, but they receive consolation by faith. He also teaches us to receive mercy by faith before we try to fulfill the law. We will quote certain other passages shortly. So we have this quote from Augustine from On the Spirit and the Letter. And the key phrase I have for you this week is that line, by the law, we fear God. By faith, we hope in God. In the law, there is no hope. We just see ourselves further and further away from God. We see his punishment coming towards us over the things that we have done that are wrong or have left undone that are right. We cannot escape that fear by doing more works of the law. Only by resorting in faith to God's mercy 
can we have that hope? Can we have what he offers to us? So now we move on into paragraph 107 to 110. Truly, it is amazing that the adversaries are in no way moved by so many passages of Scripture which clearly credit justification to faith. Indeed, Scripture denies its ability to works. Do they think that the same point is repeated so often for no purpose? Do they think that these words fell thoughtlessly from the Holy Spirit? But they have also come up with sophisticated tricks by which they escape these passages. They say that these passages of Scripture, that speak of faith, ought to be received as referring to faith that has been formed fides formata. This means that they do not credit justification to faith except on account of love. Yes, they do not credit justification to faith in any way, but only to love, because they dream that faith can coexist with mortal sin. Where does this go? They again abolish the promise and return to the law. If faith receives forgiveness of sins because of love, forgiveness of sins will always be uncertain, because we never love as much as we ought to. Indeed, we do not love unless our hearts are firmly convinced that forgiveness of sins has been granted to us. So the adversaries in forgiveness of sins and justification require confidence in one's own love. In this way, they completely abolish the gospel about the free forgiveness of sins, although at the same time, they do not offer this love or understand it unless they believe that forgiveness of sins is freely received. So we have this great phrase in from this point on through a lot of Article 5, Fides Formata. It's one of those that has for many years loomed as an idea behind the scenes that when I get some time, when I get done with the Apostolic Fathers, maybe I'll write research and write a paper on what it means for the full phrase. Fides form Caritate Formata. Faith formed by love. Part of this was in the previous call, we had the local radio station that had the church news. And the gearing up classes for confirmation at the Roman Catholic Church were called faith formation. And focusing on this, that it is by instilling love and increasing our idea of love that then faith abounds. But really, again, Melanchthon points out how well do we love? And truly, we cannot love unless our hearts are firmly convinced that we are forgiven. We cannot love our neighbor unless we realize that there is a need for loving that neighbor. That there is the forgiveness of sins that have been given to us that we are to share with them. Faith and love do go together because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love, these three abide, and the greatest of these is love. But that does not mean that love comes first. Because after all, how can you love without faith? And how can you love without hope? But hope you do not have unless you have faith. So you have faith that then gives hope and love. So Melanchthon says in paragraph 111, we also say that love ought to follow faith, 
as Paul also says in Galatians 5.6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Here's that full phrase again. This is that idea in the Vulgate version, Jerome has fides caritate formata, faith working through, faith formed by love. So what do we do? How can we talk about love and faith and hope all together? Real simple. Faith comes first. Hope and love are byproducts, are the extensions of that faith. So we go on starting in verse or starting in paragraph 112. Yet we must not think that by confidence in this love, or because of this love, we receive forgiveness of sins and reconciliation, just as we do not receive forgiveness of sins because of other works that follow. But forgiveness of sin is received by faith alone. Indeed, this is properly called faith because the promise cannot be received except by faith. Faith, properly called, is what believes this promise. Scripture speaks of this faith. Because faith receives forgiveness of sins and reconciles us to God, we are, like Abraham, counted as righteous for Christ's sake before we love and before we do the works of the law, although love necessarily follows. Now here, in this paragraph, Melanchthon throws around the word faith a lot. Faith believes the promise. Faith can only have him with the promise and all these things because that is the essence of faith it is all about the promise that is in christ he continues this thought in paragraphs 115 and 116 nor indeed is this faith an idle knowledge neither can it coexist with mortal sin it is a work of the holy spirit by which we are freed from death and terrified minds are encouraged and brought to life because this faith alone receives forgiveness of sins makes us acceptable to God, and brings the Holy Spirit, it could be more correctly called grace-making one pleasing to God. It could not be called an effect following faith. Now we have this distinction between faith and love and grace being brought into it as well. But faith is not an idle knowledge. Faith is not dependent on the love that we give. Just like faith is not dependent on the works that we do, because those works are the manifestations of the love that faith instills in us. And that faith comes to us by grace. Grace making one pleasing to God. So let's close up Article 4 here on the Apology, paragraphs 117 to 121. In order that the subject might be made quite clear, we have shown well enough so far, both from testimonies of Scripture and arguments derived from Scripture, that we receive forgiveness of sins through, for Christ's sake through faith alone. We have shown that through faith alone we are justified, that is, unrighteous people are made righteous or regenerated. How necessary the knowledge of this faith is can be easily judged. Because Christ's office is recognized in this alone, we receive Christ's benefits by this alone. Only this teaching brings sure and firm consolation to pious minds. In the church, there must be the teaching by which the pious may receive the sure hope of salvation. For the adversaries give people bad advice when they tell them to doubt whether they receive forgiveness of sins. How much will such persons attain? 
How will such persons sustain themselves in death who have heard nothing of this faith and think that they ought to doubt whether they receive forgiveness of sins? Besides, it is necessary that the gospel be kept in Christ's church, namely the promise that sins are freely forgiven for Christ's sake. Those who teach nothing of this faith we speak about complete, completely abolish the gospel. But the scholastics mention not even a word about this faith. Our adversaries follow them and reject this faith. Nor do they see that by rejecting this faith, they abolish the entire promise about the free forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ. Okay, so we have here as the segue, the kind of capstone on the issue of justification, but kind of almost an introduction into the idea of love and fulfilling the law and what happens after justification. We have this line, for the adversaries give people bad advice. What is that bad advice? And this is found even today in the confessional formulas that they give. They tell them to doubt whether they receive forgiveness of sins. This is, as we'll talk about in Article 12 in further detail, another article that Concordia splits up into two sections. But we'll talk about penance and how you have to do the penance properly in order to have the forgiveness. But you never know if you do the penance right because, I mean, really... How can you mess up the Our Father? How can you mess up the Hail Mary? Unless your mind wanders. And whose mind doesn't wander when they are going through even worship? My mind wanders in worship as I'm leading it. My mind wanders during the sermon sometimes because I have been entrenched in this text for the last week and i know what I'm going to say, but my mind wanders off into other directions. Sometimes it comes out in tangential statements in the sermon. Sometimes it's just random thoughts that pop into my head that maybe I could have put this in an earlier section. But, be that as it may, the Roman Catholic Church does not want you to be certain about your forgiveness, about your salvation. Because they're worried that things like Luther's Reformation will happen, that people will break free from the church and just live rambunctious lives because they are saved, which some people do, don't get me wrong. But those people are ones that like to abuse the system. They're like, okay, I'm saved. I've been baptized. I've been confirmed, all this. I can do whatever I want now. No, no, no. As we'll go into Article 5 of the Apology next week, we see very quickly that what happens after our justification is just as important as what happened in our justification. Because it is by what we do, we show our love for Christ, we show our love for our neighbor, or lack thereof, by our works. And we definitely don't want to be seen as people who are lacking love. All right, that is Article 4 of the, of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. We finally made it through. Next week we will dig right into Article 5 on love. 
Wednesday, there is Pro Wrestling America. Thursday, digging deeper into Psalms 15, 16, and 17 as we continue to truck through that wonderful book of the Bible as well. I encourage you to be here for all of that, for the moments of meditation that come in, for the sermons, and for any of the other special things coming up. As in this summer, I will be doing a monthly series through the Levitical sacrifices from one of my favorite Bible studies that I worked up on seeing Christ in the Levitical sacrifices. That's coming up this summer as well. But until then, this is Pastor Dugman wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.